Well, howdy, howdy to you all, ladies and gentlemen. No matter where you're at, we're right here. This is your old Uncle Enoch Hutchins, and right here is Ethan Hobbs. Come in, Ethan Ham. Howdy, everybody. Hey, now. Yeah, that's Ethan, that big loud talk there. Now, that is me. Ether Ham started his spindle here. Oh, my goodness, I'm trying to get on the air to yeah. this old guitar. Are we on the air? Yeah, on the very air. That's what we're yeah. Or what did you say? I said, was we on the air? Yeah, we're way up in there, up in the big yeah. building. Yeah. Yeah, or something. What are we going to start out with? We ain't going to start out with nothing. Why? Oh, so we'll get you rested if we start out here this thing. Uh, that's right in there watching us. Yeah, turn it, I don't mean that. I mean start out a number on a program. Oh, you're going to fiddle one first, yeah. don't you? Well, uh, what's your name of it? I do from the first number, old Frisky Dan. Let's have it. Well, okay, you guys. Yeah, you were on the air, but uh, that was back in 1939. That was Lonnie Robertson, and uh, we're just going to let him saw away. That was back in Springfield, Missouri, 1939. But now it's time for Farm and Fiddle, the radio program that celebrates and explores rural life for today and tomorrow on KOPN 89.5 FM in Columbia, Missouri. I'm Margot McMillan. I'm Red Hartman. And this is Josh Stevens. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, that's pretty good there, Ham. It's all right, yeah.
Good evening, and welcome to Farm and Fiddle, the show that explores and celebrates rural life here on 89.5 FM KOPN. This is Josh Stevens, and I'll be with you for the next hour. That opening song that we heard was called 8th of January, and it came from the album by Curly Ray Klein. The album is called The Working Man, Curly Ray Klein and His Lonesome Pine Fiddle. It was recorded in 19, 1973. The music that we're hearing in the background is from Kenny Baker from his album called Dry and Dusty. And that song is called The Wednesday Night Waltz. And this album was recorded in 1973. Well, the State House has gotten together. All the lawmakers have been meeting off and on. They are hot and heavy into it. The beginning of the legislative session started this month. And so we asked our old friend, Brian Smith from the Missouri Rural Crisis Center to join us and fill us in a little bit about what's going on at the State House, um, what's important to rural Missourians, the farmers and landowners alike, what should we be watching for. And we really appreciate Brian coming on. If you uh, aren't familiar with the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, I highly encourage you to check them out. In the interview, Brian mentions uh, getting a newsletter over email from them, and I highly recommend signing up for that newsletter if you haven't already. Um, they're really good at getting the word out about what's going on and, and who the key players are and uh, energizing us readers to um, take some action to help out Missouri farmers, Missouri lands. We'll start our interview with Brian Smith. Hello, this is Josh Stevens, and I am with Brian Smith of the Missouri Rural Crisis Center. And Brian does some lobbying work for all the small farmers here in Missouri. Uh, welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you very much for having me, Josh. I'm always happy to be on Farm and Fiddle. Yeah, we love to have you on, and and you know we usually have you on this time of year, and it's not by coincidence really it's uh because because the missouri congress is in session right now and uh, i'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about missouri rural crisis center and what you do uh for them sure yeah the missouri rural crisis center we're a statewide uh farm and rural organization we've been around since 1985, uh, formed in response to the original uh, farm foreclosure crisis back in the 80s. And that's back when, you know, like farm aid sprung up, you know, a lot of people were being foreclosed on and, and basically run off their land and run out of the farming business. And, uh, and our founder, Roger Allison, uh, was helping those folks, you know, kind of informally at first, and then, uh, you know, and then put Missouri Rural Crisis Center together in 1985. And at first it was just him and some volunteers and over the years uh you know we've grown into an organization where we have 
uh, 10 full-time staff people, and we've got several people working on different policy areas. And, and now, you know, we, we not only work on federal policy, but we also work on uh, farm and food policy and, and the state of agriculture at the uh, state and local level as well. And so my role, I've been with uh, MRCC almost eight years now. Uh, I'm a rural organizer and I also uh, do, uh, I, I head up our work at the Capitol. And uh, obviously, you know, uh, last year and, and this session so far have been very strange uh, because of the COVID crisis. Um, you know, where normally, you know, we would have in-person lobby days and encourage people to go down and attend and testify at hearings. You know, we, we really can't do that in-person stuff uh, right now. It's just not safe. You know, there's uh, been numerous outbreaks at the Capitol. They're going through one right now, you know, and uh, so we're having to do things virtually. We're going to have, you know, have to do phone calls and emails and Zoom meetings and, you know, things like that in order to get our point across. Sure. How do you think that's affected um, their ability to receive? Well, you know, it's definitely not optimal. You know, it's uh, usually, it, it, it's always, I mean, even in normal years, we encourage people to send emails and make phone calls and, and do things like that, uh, in addition to going down to the Capitol periodically for lobby days and, and uh, visits with, you know, particular uh, lawmakers who, who may be handling bills, you know, that are, are you know, uh, pertinent to us that particular year. And, um and also, you know, the, the, the supermajority down there has taken full advantage of this COVID crisis, knowing that a lot of people, um, you know, aren't going to want to come down. You know, they're, they're being pretty aggressive and moving some bad legislation this year. And, and you know, for instance, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of people, to, you know, like when you go down to the Capitol, uh, they take your temperature at the door ask you a few questions about, you know, whether you've been sick or around somebody who's been sick, you know, with COVID. And, and if you answer no and you don't have, a, you're not running a fever, they let you in. But then once you're in the building, there's absolutely no rules about whether or not you uh, wear a mask. It's completely up to the individual. And so you have, you know, in this building with these crowded conference rooms out on the Senate floor and House floor, you have scores of people who are not wearing masks and not really socially distancing themselves and so that's why you know they're having these recurring problems you know with, with COVID flare-ups down there which causes them at times to stop a uh, session for a week or two you know and try and calm that down but then they don't change the rules to make things safer when they come back so it just is kind of a cycle and so you know until you know this virus recedes or people get vaccinated it's going to be a recurring problem sure so you mentioned some bills that that you're watching and that that they're kind of the supermajority you said is is trying to run them through what exactly is going on yeah uh so you know it seems you know every year we're having to you know, deal with uh, attacks on local control. And so this year is no different. Uh, as you know, in 2019, they passed Senate Bill 391, which really uh, seeks to uh, stop counties from, uh, you know, doing local uh, CAPO health ordinances. You know, that, that uh, bill is still in court right now, uh, moving through the court process. 
and uh, and probably won't be resolved, you know, for several months, if not, you know, even maybe the end of the year or next year. Um, and so they're still doing other things, though, to attack local control. And, and one thing they are using is they're trying to use uh, what they term excessive COVID restrictions at the county levels, um, you know, to attack local control further. And so there are some bills we sent out an action alert uh, to our members uh, last week and, and also today uh, about some bad bills in the Senate. And like, for instance, one is uh, Senate Bill 20 offered by uh, Senator Denny Hoskins. And that bill would not allow a health board to pass any type of ordinance or rule without getting the approval first of the county commission. And so basically it creates a situation where the health board would come up with an ordinance or a health order to deal with an, whether it's an outbreak, whether it's capos, whether it's, you know, you know, any kind of public health hazard, uh, they would have to give the county commission 30 days to re to review uh, what they want to do and then either make any changes if they want to go forward with it. And then if the county commission approves of the ordinance in some form, then it would, they'd have to open up to a 30-day public comment period. So you're, you're talking about two months, essentially, that it would take for a health ordinance to go into effect. And so, you know, if you look back, you know, uh, if, you know, when, in last March when COVID emerged on the scene, you know, uh, according to, the, you know, if that rule was in place or that law was in place, uh, it, you know, uh, our county governments would have not been able to react until, you know, about uh, April, you know, and think about how disastrous that could have been. And also, uh, for instance, if there were, say, a capo spill, you know, you've got a polluted waterway, they're trying to do something to deal with that, you know, you'd have to wait two months before you could do, you know, before you could uh, effectively deal with that conceivably. And so, uh, so that's a bad bill. And, and, and we've been having people call and email and, and do that sort of thing uh, to try and discourage that bill from going any further forward. And it's still in committee. Uh, they may vote it out in some form or fashion tomorrow, which is why we sent out an email today. Or why we sent out an email on Monday, I should say, about that. And so... Uh, so there's that, and, and just to, you know, like another consideration that a legislator brought up was what if a more virulent virus like Ebola, which has a much higher death rate, you know, were to emerge on the scene? You know, you can't be waiting around two months to take action on something like that. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. And so that's one bill. Uh, another bill we're looking at is Senate Bill 56. Uh, from Senator Cindy O'Laughlin up in Northeast Missouri, and her bill is even more extreme. It, would, it basically says that health departments, local health boards, have, should not be writing any health ordinances at all. It takes them completely out of the ordinance writing procedures, and uh, it puts it solely in the lap of county commissions. You know, as if county commissioners don't have enough to do. You know, it's not a matter of attacking county commissioners and saying they're not, you know, uh, the right people to do it or anything like that. You know, it, you know, because county commissioners like have been doing capo health ordinances over the last 20 years. So they're, you know, while they're qualified, it's like if you've ever talked to a county commissioner and asked them, 
about what all they have to deal with. It's a staggering amount. And so now they want to put public health solely in their in their labs when you have a health board, you know, that, that is designed to deal with, with problems like that. Again, be it a virus, be it a, a CAFO situation, you know, uh, anything that puts the public health at risk, our local health boards are in the best position uh, to deal with those things. And then finally, uh, there's Senate Bill 31, uh, that was offered by uh, Senator Mike Searpoy out of the Kansas City metro area. And that bill basically would limit fines uh, uh, for violating a local health ordinance of any type to no more than $25. Wow. And so if you're, th- <laughs> if you're thinking about, uh, you know, these big CAFO corporations like Smithfield, they're owned by China. If you're thinking about Cargill or JBS, the, the Brazilian meatpacker, um, you know, $25 is nothing. I mean, you know, that, that's not even a cost of doing business. They could come out of pocket. Uh, with that, why wouldn't they break the rules? You know, sure. with a fine, you know, that small. And so, you know, obviously, what that does is it takes all account. There's no way to hold these people accountable for breaking the law. Essentially, you know, if you max out at twenty five dollars, yeah. um, you know, Senator Searpoy said his intention on that uh, was around mask mandates that people shouldn't be fined more than twenty five bucks for not wearing a mask. You know, that that's fine. If so, write the bill that way. You know, yeah. to write such a broad brush that includes all ordinances and all situations is is reckless and and that bill should not move forward and you know one thing i wanted to point out uh josh is that you know when you look at governor parson you know in, in his in the way he has handled local control um on the one hand in 2019 with senate bill 391 he was telling the counties that no you cannot uh, put extra protections in place above the completely inadequate rules we have at DNR. DNR provides essentially no protection for our communities and our waterways and air and people's property rights and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so he's saying, you know, they don't have a, you know, you know, they should not have the right to put in rules in place to protect their communities from the negative consequences of these capos. Well, then he turns around when COVID hits, you know, uh, you know, the worst virus outbreak in, in, you know, since the 1918 uh, Spanish flu, you know, and turns around and says, okay, you know, it's not, you know, it's not the role of state government to dictate to all these communities how they handle COVID. So, you know, he basically tosses it in the laps of, of our local authorities. And now the state legislature is coming back and saying, no, you can't be making these rules. You know, we, we, we don't want you to have that power. And so, you know, Parson is basically, uh, you know, taking really a, you know, a, a, a hip, hypocrit- you know, a hypocritical stance on this because while we have years of experience in dealing with CAFOs, you know, uh, here and in Iowa and other states, you know, there's a lot of information out there about what CAFOs can do to a community, what they can do to neighboring properties. Uh, what they do to local economies, none of it good. Um, you know, you know, people can't deal with that, but they can deal with a virus where there is very little known um, and no rules or, you know, there's no history of, of dealing with this sort of thing. You know, you're just kind of having to deal with it as information comes in about the best ways to deal with it. So, you know, it's very contradictory. Yes. And so, uh you know, so, so anyway, so yeah, we're very much against those three bills and encourage people to weigh in against them.
Um, and I'll pause here in case you have any questions about those bills. <laughs> what committees were they in? Uh, those bills, because they were uh, they were kind of dealing with COVID, uh, you know. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, they, it was the Senate Health and Pensions Committee uh, that's been dealing with these bills. Whereas normally, local control bills like that usually go to agriculture, but uh, this time it went to Senate Health and Pensions. Gotcha. <clears throat> Yeah, it does seem strange to me that that there's this big push to take away local control. It makes sense when you see that, you know, you have outsider corporate influence who who wants to, uh, you know, basically just weigh lace to the land around these sites, these CAFO sites. And that... Yeah, they're all about extracting profit, you know, is the thing. And, and, and they don't care how much damage they cause, who gets hurt, you know, because they're not a part of these communities. That's the big thing is that, you know, the, the, the organizations like the Farm Bureau and Cattlemen and Pork uh, uh, Association, Missouri Pork Association, who support these CAFO operations, they always try to portray it as though, oh, it's the farmer down the road, you know, and, and, and uh, you're using these health ordinances to keep them from growing their operations or handing it down to the next generation. And, and, and it's just a, it, it is just a complete fallacy. The vast majority of these operations are at the very least out-of-state operations, uh, and sometimes foreign-owned and controlled, in the case of, like, Smithfield and JBS. And what it is is they uh, come into our communities, buy, you know, 25, 30 acres of land at a time, put these CAFOs in you know, with no regard, you know, for the impact, for the, the pollution, for the air, uh, the air quality or the quality of life or property values, you know, uh, of the surrounding neighbors. You know, and it's really kind of a diabolical business plan in a way is because as property values start to tank in the properties that surround a CAFO, it becomes a case where when the people who live on those properties have had enough and they can't take it anymore and they got to leave, uh, the only people they can sell their land to for pennies on the dollar are the CAFOs. And so, you know, so the CAFO has more land, you know, the, the, you know, the uh, seller didn't get a fair price for their land. And it's just a terrible situation all around. And sure. so, um, now one th now on a bright note, one thing we've been doing basically since 2013 is we've been fighting the foreign corporate ownership of Missouri farmland. And uh, you know, I've told the story on this program on several occasions. I'll give you a thumbnail sketch. You know, in 2013 at the end of session in a huge omnibus bill that wasn't properly vetted. They put language in that opened up uh, almost 300,000 acres of Missouri farmland to foreign corporate ownership, where previously it had been outlawed. From 1978 to 2013, foreign corporations were not allowed to buy uh, Missouri farmland. And, uh, and so they opened that up, and then they put in a loophole that basically you know, uh, removes that 300, that 200, at the time, 289,000 acre limitation or 1% of our farmland and basically made it to where, you know, there's really no way to track uh, the purchases and, and, you know, which means the sky is the limit in terms of how much of our farmland that foreign corporations could uh, buy and own and control. And, uh, and so for the last uh, few 
few years, we, we, we've had some legislators, both Republican and Democrat, offer bills to put a stop to this, just put a flat stop, uh, you know, grandfather in uh, the amount of land that's owned so far, which is about 44,000 acres uh, that we know of. You know, it could be a lot more, again, because of that loophole they put in. But, you know, it would stop it where it's at and not allow any more. And, and this year, uh, Senator Doug Beck out of the St. Louis area is sponsoring Senate Bill 243, uh, which does that. And so we, so, uh, you know, we're on the local control bills. We're asking people, you know, to call and weigh in and send emails uh, opposing those bills. We'd also like people to support Senate Bill 243 and encourage uh, the leaders in the Senate to get that bill moving and get it passed. Great. Thank you for sharing that. And then uh, also one thing, I, I, before I get into the DNR rule change on the groundwater table, I'd like to get into um, uh, uh, the fact that we're having a, a legislative Zoom meeting uh, coming up this uh, coming up tomorrow night uh, at 6 p.m. Uh, and and we're asking people, you know, to, to join us for that. You know, you can sign up. We we have emails and stuff out uh, with links that you can sign up to join us in that meeting. It's going to be at 6 p.m. It's going to go uh, till about 7 or 7:15. We're not going to tie up your whole evening, but we're going to talk about the local control bills we just discussed. We're going to talk about that foreign ownership bill, and also, you know, how you can effectively weigh in on these bills and during these crazy COVID times. Great. Um, so how does one find find the invitation to that if they don't get emails? Well, if you're not on our email list, first of all, I would encourage everyone to go to our website at uh, www.morural.org and uh, sign up to get involved with us. That, that will get you on our email list. Uh, basically, if you are interested, uh, please feel free to either email me uh, again, my name's Brian Smith, and my email is Brian with an I at morural.org. And so you can shoot me an email, or you can give me a call. Our phone number at the office is area code 573-449-1336, and I'd be happy to send you a link uh, to you know join us in that meeting on on uh, tomorrow night on Thursday. And um, and so it's very important because, you know, we're, we're going to not only discuss the ins and outs of the bills, but also talk about how you can get involved, you know, without having to go down to Jeff City and, and uh, put yourself in jeopardy of, of getting sick and making others sick. And, uh, and then again, another issue we're going to talk about at, uh, at this event is uh, DNR is attempting to do a rule change. And, and I'll give all the information again, uh, you know, uh, towards the end of my time, you know, for people to get in touch with us.
Hope you're enjoying the program so far. Took a little musical break there, and we listened to Ralph Blizzard and the New Southern Ramblers. We heard some songs from his album called The Blizzard Train. The first song we heard was Sugar Tree Stomp, and the song after that, this last one we heard, was called Blizzard Train. And it says Ralph took the old tune Lost Train Blues, Lost Train Blues, and added so much to it over the years that he retitled it. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you uh, missed the beginning of the program, you're tuned in to 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. This is Farm and Fiddle. And we're uh, talking with Brian Smith from the Missouri Rural Crisis Center about what's happening in the uh, state lawmakers circle at the Capitol.
you know, deeper underneath the ground. You have your surface water, of course, at the surface. Well, in between, you have something called perched water. And perched water is the water that will crack the foundation in your basement or crack your foundation outright over time. It's a temporary water area that usually comes after a big rain, but not always. And it's kind of due to rock formations and everything beneath it. It will flow sideways or even up for a period of time before usually nine times out of ten it ends up settling back down into the groundwater. Occasionally it will emerge through a surface spring or something like that or it will just kind of evaporate if it's a smaller amount. And um, and so the reason that's an issue is uh, because at that level where the perch water comes in, in between the surface and in between the groundwater is where these capos build a lot of these deep pits uh, manure uh, uh, structures, which are concrete. And so just like your basement walls or your foundation, over time, these perched water, uh, you know, water bodies are, you know, uh, you know, end up putting cracks, you know, in that concrete and, could, and can definitely lead to, um, you know, some pollution, you know, down at the ground, most likely at the, you know, down into the groundwater. And so they're trying to take perched water out of the definition of groundwater so they don't have to account for it. And so this is being done uh, in, you know, uh, because of a CAFO permit application up in Livingston County uh, from United Hog Systems, which is going to be uh, a pork facility, or they hope to be a 10,500 head of uh, hog facility um, in Livingston County near uh, the Pusey Conservation Area, within two miles of the Pusey Conservation Area, which is terrible in and of itself. And so... Uh, they have a purse water issue, you know, with their application there. Where they're building, uh, purse water has been found. And so, you know, that over time it will end up damaging their deep pit, you know, manure storage. And, um, and so um, they're trying to bypass that by changing the rules at DNR in, in order to do that. Uh, you know, so that you know, so they can get their permit to build that capo, you know, to put that community at risk, to put those water sources at risk, and so it's really corporate ag, you know, at its very worst. You know, going straight to DNR and trying to change rules on the fly in order to benefit a, a company that's opening the capo that's going to be running JBS hogs, you know, the Brazilian operation. Uh, running JBS hogs through there. So again, it's not your your friendly local farmer neighbor. You know, these are out of state, out of country corporations, and uh, and, and so you know we, we've been fighting hard about that. And so we've been encouraging people uh, to write letters to DNR, and we've already gotten a bunch in uh, towards the end of last year when when they first brought this up, and now they're going to be doing a, a formal rulemaking procedure. Uh, that's going to be uh, from February 16th to March 25th, and so we're going to be asking people uh, to write letters and send emails, you know, uh, and, you know, uh, encouraging them not to uh, change this rule this way, and to keep perched water in the definition of groundwater. And so, and, and we'll be talking about that tomorrow night as well. Great. So it sounds like. The the last I heard about it was a judge had halted it until January sixth, and and now you're saying that they're going into this formal rulemaking. Well, yeah, yeah. So so here's the situation: they were trying to pass an emergency rule, 
and they wanted it to go into effect in the middle of, uh, like, I believe it was December 22nd. You know, now they were planning to do this formal permanent rulemaking process all the while because, you know, because with a, an emergency rule, that's only, if it goes into effect, it's only good, uh, you know, uh, for a, a certain amount of time. So, like, if it had gone through and gone into effect on December 22nd, it would have expired in June. And so that's why in January they were, in, you know, this month they were intending to start the clock and start the process gotcha. of a formal permanent rule change. And so that's what that comment period is about. Now, in December, a group of citizens did get together, you know, from Livingston County and elsewhere, and uh, filed a, a, a lawsuit to try and get a writ of prohibition against the, the emergency rule from going into effect. And a writ, you know, was put in place. And so now it, it's going through the procedure. In fact, I believe there was a, a hearing. Uh, I'm, I'm no, not today. That's for the other Senate Bill 391 lawsuit. But uh, so now, uh, you know, the, the rule is not in place because the writ of prohibition is in place. And so now there's some wrangling going on, changing judges and, you know, that sort of thing. And so uh, so that process is, is still going on. You know, the rule is not in effect at this time, you know, but the permanent rulemaking process is starting up and, 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 and is going to continue along its timeline. And so, you know, we're going to need people to weigh in again, you know, like even if you wrote a letter or an email last time, you're going to need to write one again, um, you know, in February, you know, between February 16th and March 25th. And also they're going to have a, a Zoom WebEx, you know, virtual meeting of the Clean Water Commission uh, about this on or, uh, on uh, March the 18th. And, and, uh, and we're going to want a lot of people to attend that and, and make their voices heard. Great. Thank you. And, you know, I, I just want to stop and, and remind our listeners, um, you know, Missouri Rural Crisis Center is really out helping these folks who feel pretty isolated, probably, feel pretty abandoned. Uh, you know, I imagine if one of these places, one of these CAFOs wants to move into your neighborhood, you don't have a lot of help you can turn to um, to deal with it. And I just want to really show gratitude to the Missouri Rural Crisis Center for helping these folks out when when they have don't have a lot of options. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, we, yeah, we appreciate that, Josh. And, and, and the thing is, we have a ton of gratitude for all of our great members and supporters, you know, who have uh, been willing to step up for a lot of years on a lot of issues. And, uh, and, and in things like this, you know, you, you have some wins, you have some losses, you know, but you, you know, the, the struggle just continues, you know, year to year and, and, uh, none, none of the success, uh, you know, or none in stopping some of this stuff would have been possible without the, the, great work, you know, that members and supporters, you know, have, have done uh, on this, you know, being, you know, pre-COVID, being willing to go to Jeff City, you know, some, sometimes people driving across the state to testify at a hearing or to talk to their neighbors or to talk to their county commissioners or health boards, um, you know, all of that is, is a big part of, of uh, stopping this stuff because, you know, and, and the thing is, it has, you know, you know, there has been a good amount of, of success over the years. When you look at where we are right now with CAFOs, right now we have, 
you know, probably just a shade under 600 uh, CAFOs in the state of Missouri. And that sounds like a lot. But when you look just, uh, you know, to our neighbor to the north in Iowa, they lost local control about 15 years ago. And they are now over 10,000 CAFOs in their state. And, and their results have been devastating. You know, they have over 700 polluted waterways. They have spent millions and millions of dollars trying to clean up the Des Moines River. And on, and on the Des Moines River, you know, that's not all CAFOs, but CAFOs are a huge, significant contributing factor uh, to the Des Moines River problems and, and also to those other 700 polluted waterways. And, you know, and, and so, you know, we don't have that yet here. You know, we don't have over 10,000 CAFOs. We don't have you know, all these horribly polluted waterways, but that is what they are trying to do. And that is what organizations like the Farm Bureau and the Missouri Cattlemen's Association and the Missouri Pork Association are trying to push onto Missouri. You know, they are trying to remove all the, any conceivable accountability or opinions from the citizens who live in these communities and would have to live next to these CAFOs and, and have shared water sources with these potential CAFOs. And, um, and, and so, you know, that's why we're tireless in, in what we do. And, and we're going to, and we're going to fight this, you know, trend every step of the way, because we do not want to see our beautiful state go the way of, of, uh, states like Iowa and Minnesota and, and Nebraska, you know, who've had lots of problems with this. Yeah, for sure. I've been reading the news from Iowa a lot just to understand, you know, what it could look like here if, if we just let it continue. And would you say that, you know, Iowa's maybe 10 or 15 years ahead of us and we can... Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they, they you know, they lost uh, the ability, you know, for to do health ordinances or much of anything at the local level regarding CAPOs about 15 years ago. And, and you know, before they lost that, they weren't in that bad of shape at all. You know, they, they, were, they were very similar to us. And so, you know, uh, in Iowa... 15 years ago, they really made a concerted effort to remove any any kind of legal resistance, political resistance, um, you know, uh, to CAFOs moving in. You know, I mean, you had plenty of angry citizens and angry communities, you know, but, but they had removed, you know, what they looked at as roadblocks and, and uh, moved in lock, stock, and barrel. And so the problem is that sometimes people get deceived by the fact that you know, a CAFO comes in and they're like, oh, we just want to buy 25, 30 acres, you know. I mean, it's not like we're buying up the whole county, but the problem is, is once they get into a county, you know, with their 25, 30-acre plot, then they start socking in more and more CAFOs in that county, you know. I mean, and so, you know, one 30-acre CAFO may not seem like that big of a deal, but it quickly turns into dozens. And, uh, and and think about a dozen or more capos in any of our rural counties, and and it's just it, it makes you shudder. Yeah, and and it looks like it's heading that way if if certain powers have their way. Yeah, that, you know that's why the Senate Bill three ninety one lawsuit is really important, and uh, it's also important you know to, to fight the ongoing chipping away at local control that they do every year because see. With those local control bills I discussed earlier, one of the big concerns is, is like, if our side does prevail, you know, in the Senate Bill 391 lawsuit, we don't want any further changes 
any more restrictions on local control being put in in and around that, you know, to where if we do prevail in the lawsuit, we still have lost local control, if you see what I mean. And so, you know, that's why it's important. You know, we can't just sit back and, and hope the Senate Bill 391 lawsuit, you know, works out okay. It may, it may not, you know, but, you know, if it does, you know, with bills like what we're seeing this year, they are actively trying in a way to kind of hedge their bets. Like if we lose 391, we can still tie up local control in these other areas. And, and that's why it's important to weigh in against these bills. Yeah, they're coming at it from so many angles, hoping to just get one of them through. Exactly. It's tricky, tricky. Yes. Yeah, and in and if this SB three ninety one fails in in court, or if it passes, if it does pass in court, and let's say these three didn't go through this year, we can expect more next year. It, they're just going to keep. Keep going until yeah. they get it. I mean, you know, Senate Bill 391 was kind of a, a culmination of, of battles on that particular statute, 192-300, that have been going on for 15 years. You know, and, and see, and that's the thing, you know, and, and that's why I really tip my hat, you know, to uh, our, you know, our members and supporters across in the state of Missouri is that it's not like in Missouri, they just started trying to fight local control. When they were taking local control away up in Iowa, they were trying to do the same thing here in Missouri. But year after year, our members and supporters stood up and fought against that and didn't allow that to happen here. Well, so, you know, then in uh, 2019, Senate Bill 391 passed, you know, in large part, you know, because of a supermajority and also having a governor. Uh, in the governor's mansion and, and Governor Parson, you know, who is very tight with the corporate agriculture industry. He's very tight with Boris Lucas and with the Missouri Cattlemen and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and the Farm Bureau. And, and so, I mean, he's chapter and verse, you know, in terms of trying to advance their vision, which is uh, diametrically opposed, you know, to what family farmers want, what rural communities need, and, and what we've been fighting for all these many years. Yeah. Yeah, it seems that way. Um, we don't have much time left, maybe five minutes. I'm wondering um, if there's anything on the federal level that that might be worth talking about. And then, of course, if you could... Well, on the federal level, yeah. Uh, you know, of course, we have a new administration uh, going in, the Biden administration. And so, I mean, there is, you know, there are opportunities there. Uh, to weigh in on things like future farm bills, to weigh in on on things like you know, uh, um, you know, you know, in terms of where federal money goes. You know, essentially, I mean, there's a bunch of you know alphabet soup, you know, uh, programs and organizations. You know, and we do work a lot uh, and interact a lot with the USDA on a lot of these issues. And you know, the the, the main point of what we're trying to do is to make sure, you know, that. None or very little federal money goes to support uh, the CAFO style of agriculture. It should be going to independent family farmers, you know, who are trying to, uh, you know, farm responsibly and sustainably and, uh, and also, you know, be able to, you know, have more farmers making a living in farming, getting a fair price for their goods. And, uh, and, you know, promoting the CAFO style of agriculture is, uh, is, is the opposite of that. 
And, and so basically, um, you know, you'll be hearing, uh, we'll be talking some about that on our Zoom meeting tomorrow night. Tim's going to enlighten us on some of the, of the specific programs and priorities that we have for the coming year in working with the new Biden administration. Uh, you know, and and, and, uh, and so we're, you know, we're excited to, to pursue those possibilities. And speaking of the Zoom meeting, let me once again say, uh, you know, please, if you've received one of our emails about this, uh, please sign up and join us tomorrow night. It's going to be a great meeting, really important. And it's at 6 p.m. It starts. And if you are not on our mailing list, email list and want to join us for the meeting, uh, please contact me, Brian Smith. My email is brian with an I at morural.org. Uh, you can also reach me by phone at 573-449-1336. And if you haven't done so yet, you should sign up. Definitely uh, go to our website and sign up to get involved with us. You can find our website at www.morural.org. And of course, we're also on Facebook. You know, just look for Missouri Rural Crisis Center. And you could also, you know, message us uh, there and also check out our posts. You know, check out uh, the things we're working on. That, that, that can be a, an easy way to get, get a sense of, of what we're doing. And, um, and Josh, I want to thank you very much uh, for inviting me on the program tonight. Uh, you know, uh, MRCC loves farm and fiddle, and, and we always jump at a chance to, to be on this terrific program. Thank you, Brian. It's been great to listen to what what's going on. I really appreciate you going in there and, and finding out for us and fighting for us to uh, help keep keep our lands the way uh, the the locals here want to keep them. Maybe we can have you on before the end of the session, and you can just give us an update on how things have been moving. Yeah, yeah, because usually in, in April, things, you know, and, and, you know, and I don't know what COVID's going to do and how, much, how often it's going to stop the legislature, but uh, usually April is when things really start picking up. Okay, great. Well, thank you very All much, All right, thanks Brian. again, man. I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. That concludes our discussion with Brian Smith of the Missouri Rural Crisis Center here on Farm and Fiddle on 89.5 FM, KOPN. Hope you enjoyed that, and uh, if you're available, I hope you can attend the legislative kickoff that Brian will be conducting online. That's tomorrow. Okay, we're going to finish it out with one song, and then we're going to let you go on to the good sounds of jazz. This last song is called Smith's Waltz, and it's by Ralph Blizzard and the New Southern Ramblers, their album called Blizzard Train. And it was created in 1989. Thank you, everyone, and hope you have a blessed night.